0: community church had organized in the early 1900s it had some name changes and affiliation changes over the years but its focus of impacting its community with the gospel is something that has never changed over the years west pike community church has been blessed to have a a large pool of dedicated workers that's what every church and pastor dreams of by the way their current pastor attributes that large pool to an entrenched discipleship program he inherited that begun under his predecessor's tutelage well over three decades ago. Now, two products of that of that discipleship program are Cynthia and Amanda. Now, both Cynthia and Amanda are wives as well as mothers, and they have a heart and a giftedness for children's ministries. Cynthia directs the church's nursery and Iwana programs, while Amanda directs the the church's Sunday school program. All three programs have large attendances and staff. Each summer, Cynthia and Amanda, they, they band together so that they might lead the church's vacation Bible school. Typically, they begin preparing for that outreach about now. This time in in the winter. Now the first decision, and if you're involved in VBS you understand this, that they need to make every year is to choose the curriculum that they're going to be using and then they have to order it. Over the years they've had no difficulty coming to a decision. But this year was different. It was different. Both ladies felt very strongly about one particular VBS curriculum. Now, the pastor had learned to trust Cynthia and Amanda's decision-making whenever it came to children's ministries. So he never had to voice his opinion. But this year, Cynthia and Amanda, they were at an impasse. And they needed to decide on the VBS curriculum soon because the publisher's early bird special was about to expire. Now after that date expired, the curriculum more than doubled in its price. So you can see why they needed to choose very soon. Now to make matters both, both of these ladies were rallying troops to their side. So as you might imagine, division was beginning to take place in the church. Now furthermore, the pastor was on a a missions trip out of country. His estimated time of arrival back in country was past the the early bird special, the closing date. Now fortunately, this pastor, he knew of the impasse, and he also had cell phone coverage. So he called his wife and found, found out that the division had not yet settled, but actually had been intensifying, getting worse. Next, the pastor called both ladies and he exhorted them to end the impasse and to come to an agreement. After that, he called his vice chairman of his elder board, and he asked if he would meet with those two ladies to work out the differences so that they might come to an agreement before the deadline passed. Now you see the ball was in Cynthia's and Amanda's court. The pastor believed that they they walked close enough with the Lord that they would come to their senses to some kind of a curriculum that they could jointly agree on. Now, that fictitious story that I just told is a contemporary slant on a sharp disagreement we read about between two ladies in the church at Philippi. It's very loose, very loose interpretation. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles and we'll read those verses, Philippians chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. Apostle Paul is writing, he writes, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask that you certainly might speak today. I pray that you would use these feeble words of mine for your glory. I pray that your word would be rightly divided. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher and our guide. And truly, truly may I be hidden behind the cross of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So what do we know about those two ladies that are mentioned in our text? Well, honestly, we don't know much. But let me share some of the things we know. First, we know their names were Yodia and Synchete. We know that's their names. Now, Yodia means a prosperous journey. While Synchete, her name means a pleasant acquaintance. A pleasant acquaintance. Now, second, we also know that there was a a sharp disagreement between the two of them. But we aren't told what that disagreement centered on. Now, in my loose interpretation, I I imagine it as being a a problem on trying to come to an agreement on on vacation Bible school material. That's just what I was, my thought on that one. Obviously, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. But I am going to give you a better opinion momentarily. So just hold that thought. Now, early in his letter, Paul had addressed an apparent dissension in their assembly. He addressed it early on in the second chapter, verses 1 through 4. Now, many scholars believe that Yodia and Synchote's difference of opinion was really the cause or the catalyst of that dissension. At the very least, Yodi and Synchote... We're not living up to their names. And that's why I gave you their names. Because Yodia wasn't being very prosperous. And Synchety wasn't being very pleasant. Now third, we also know that these two ladies had labored alongside Paul in the furthering of the gospel. He tells us that. Now some scholars believe that Yodia and Synchety were members of the women's prayer group that Paul and Dr. Luke had ministered to next to a a river outside of the city gate in Philippi. you, You might remember that from the book of Acts. Now from that group, Lydia was the one that we read about. She was the first converts of Paul in Philippi. Now, if Yodia and Synchete were two women who were also in that group, and it's very possible, then they would have been charter members of the church in Philippi. It's possible. And finally, we know that Paul encouraged this reconciliation between Yodia and Synchete. I already said we're not told what their disagreement centered on. But I have a sneaking suspicion that it really centered on Methodology, methodology. Let me tell you why. I say that because these two women, they appear to have been very devoted and, and steadfast, we might say, in their service to the Lord. Thus, I don't think their disagreement, their division had anything do to do with the Church of Philippi's mission of, of reaching the lost and edifying the saints, but probably had everything to do with how they're going to accomplish that mission how they're going to reach the lost, how they're going to edify the saints. Now, besides the fact, it's been my personal experience, that methodology is usually the reason behind most disagreements in the church. We know we have to reach the lost. We know we have to edify the saints to help the saints grow. But we often differ on how we're going to accomplish that, what needs to be done. So probably that was also true in that day. Probably. Now at the conclusion of this message, I'm going to be asking you if you need to cast aside your slants or personal agendas so that the gospel may proceed unimpeded. So be thinking about that. Because you see, each of us comes to the table with particular slants and personal agendas Related to how that we think ministry should be accomplished. Every one of us. Now the problem is this. There's about a hundred of us, give or take, not now, but using pre-pandemic attendance figures. About a hundred. Now that means we got a lot of opinions out there then, don't we? A lot of thoughts on how we should be doing ministry. And many of those thoughts are actually biblical... Many of them are accomplice, but you know, the only really opinion that matters is the Lord's. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Okay. Since the church's unity is so vitally necessary, Paul articulated three of unity's requirements in that text that I just read. Three. Now we're going to take the time to discuss each during the body of today's message. Now, all in all, today's theme is this Unity is always worth the effort. Now, it's not just sometimes worth the effort. Unity is always worth the effort. And if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember that. Unity is always worth the effort. That's our theme. Let's say that together Unity is always worth the effort. And sometimes it is an effort, isn't it? So let's begin. Let's begin. The first requirement of unity that Paul articulated in today's text is this. Unity requires desire. Desire. Now, of course, Paul had that desire. And that's why he used pen and paper so that he might articulate it. I want you to understand it's it's doubtful. The disagreement between Yodia and Syncity was something that was a private matter. That, that's doubtful. Rarely do disagreements of, of this magnitude ever remain private. Perhaps they start out like that, but then they begin to leak and infiltrate the church. So I suspect that it was common knowledge that Yodia and Syncity were warring with against one another. And that's why Paul address their disagreement through his letter so that it could be read publicly. If they didn't know, they were going to find out because this was to be read publicly. Now, I suspect that Paul also wanted the Philippian church to know that he was well aware of their disagreement and he was addressing it. Now, the ball was in their court. Paul was hoping to use this letter as leverage of sort. So the two ladies would work out their differences before any further division would occur in the church. Remember, we already said many scholars believe the disunity the church at Philippi was experienced centered on the sharp disagreement that these two ladies, Yodia and Synchete, had with one another. Now for the next several minutes, let me discuss with you who does And who should desire unity? Who does and who should? Now first we're going to discuss the one who desires unity. So who is that one, you ask? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus desires unity. He desires it. How do I know that, you ask? Well, Jesus prayed, and I want you to hear this, He prayed for the church's unity just prior to His arrest and His crucifixion, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, how do I know that? Well, Jesus prayed for those who would believe in Him as a result of the disciples' witness. So He prayed for His disciples. Then He also prayed for those who would become believers because of the disciples' witness. That would include us. That would include every Christian church that has been and every Christian church that will be. So we're thrown in there. Now let me share a portion of that prayer with you. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, My prayer is not for them alone. Now that was his prayer. He just ended his prayer with for the disciples. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be us. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also... Be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So you don't have to wonder. You don't have to think, oh, does God desire unity for the Music Alliance Community Church? Certainly, He desires unity. He desires lunacy for that matter for any Christian church. Jesus prayed that believers would be one. So when believers seek unity, what they're doing is seeking God's will for themselves. But sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Sometimes that's hard. We've all done church differently in the past. We've we've all worshipped differently. We've all reached out differently. Thus seeking unity is... Never easy, however, as we already said, unity is always worth the effort. Don't forget that. But not only does Jesus desire unity, moreover, if unity is to occur, church leaders must desire unity. Jesus absolutely desires it. He prayed that for us. But church leaders must desire unity. They have to set the example. They have to be willing to to seek the Lord's will. Church leaders have to be willing to to offer correction or even rebuke when that's necessary. And church leaders must be willing to lead with courage. Sometimes desiring unity, I'm just speaking from experience, it requires courageous living, courageous leading. Paul set that example in today's text for seeking unity. For he tells us in, the, in those verses that he was pleading, I'm pleading with you, Yodia, I'm pleading with you, Syncity, to do the right thing and to agree in the Lord. Paul had spiritual authority over the two. Nonetheless, this is important, the onus fell upon Yodia and Syncity to do the right thing and agree in the Lord. Paul was exhorting the two But this is important. He could not force reconciliation, and neither can we. We can suggest it, we can encourage it, but we can't force it. That reminds us that warring Christians must desire unity. Warring Christians. If they're truly walking in the Spirit, warring Christians, they eventually, you see, come to their senses, and they reconcile with one another. Paul was hopeful that Yodia and Syncity would follow the Spirit's leading and settle their differences peaceably. But sometimes, it's been my experience, it takes frequent nudges, frequent urgings from the church leaders and, and trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord before one or, or both parties seek to settle their differences peaceably. Thus far we said, Jesus desires unity. Church leaders must desire unity, and warring Christians also need to desire unity. finally it's equally true that the church, the church body, must desire unity. all of us in today 's text, Paul was enlisting help from a fellow yoke fellow to aid in helping yodia and syncaty agree in the Lord. Now, some believe that Paul was addressing A specific person. Perhaps it was an elder that he was addressing, please step up to the plate and function as a mediator of sort in my absence. Now as an aside, sometimes mediators are needed. Sometimes they're needed. I've had a function over the years as a mediator between two people. Mediators can't force reconciliation. But one of the things that they do is they help to keep the peace and keep the channels of communication open. Therefore, Paul's loyal yoke fellow would function as a peacemaker. Do you remember what Jesus said about peacemakers in his Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember that? Now, in case you've forgotten... Let me remind you, Jesus said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The church needs peacemakers, not pot stirrers. Now we've seen enough pot stirrers in the world, haven't we? Obviously, Paul was a peacemaker and not a pot stirrer. What about you? Would you say that you're mostly a peacemaker rather than mostly a pot stirrer? I hope it's the former. I hope it's the former. Other than desire. A second requirement of unity that Paul articulated in today's text is this. Unity requires humility. It requires desire, than humility. Now I say that because it's far easier to stay in conflict with another than it is to seek unity. Far easier. But it's been my experience. When conflict is something that is allowed to fester, it often leads to bitterness and division. Those are its ugly byproducts. Paul was hopeful that either Yodia or Syngote would humbly make the first move toward agreeing in the Lord. That was his hope. That's often what it takes. And when one party humbly makes the first move toward agreeing in the Lord with another, then the other party, if they're walking with the Lord, they're quick to follow. If Yodi and Sycate weren't willing to do so, then Paul was hopeful that this loyal yoke fellow would encourage each other to agree in the Lord in his absence. So let me quickly share with you five means that unity is personified in humility. Now, These are not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. These are also not earth-shattering, but they are, I think, worth mentioning. The first means that unity is personified in humility as is. A humble person listens. A humble person listens. Now, in many circles, I believe that listening is a lost art these days. You ever notice that? I think that's true because, now now hear me when I say this. Many wrongly feel that what they have to say is of more value than anybody else. You ever notice that? Thus some don't even let you finish what you're saying before they begin interrupting. But the Bible was clear that believers should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let me share James's exhortation to that. James chapter one, verse 19. He says, "My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry." So would you say you're quicker to listen or quicker to speak? A humble person values what another says, so they're much quicker to listen. Now, other than listening, what other means is unity personified in humility? Well, here's the second means. A humble person casts aside personal slants. Excuse me, slants or personal agendas. Slants or personal agendas. They cast those aside. They do so because they realize that they're not always right, and there are other ways of doing things. I would think that most of us have worked with that boss who's my way or the highway. You ever have a boss like that? We all have, I think. Maybe he's your boss now. You don't want to raise your hand because he might be in the sanctuary. Their inflexibility and rigidness stifles free thinking. But let's be honest there. Just because something's worked in the past doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to work in the future. That kind of thinking has been the demise of of many churches. Well, we've always done it this way, so we always need to do it this way. Now, that may be true, but it also may not be true. Perhaps it might be appropriate for you to mull over any slants or personal agendas that you bring to the table, for we all bring some, including me. I've got mine too. But the question is this. Are those slants and personal agendas god's will for this church now third means where unity is personified in humility is this a humble person admits their faults and shortcomings they admit them they realize that they're not infallible they, they realize they're flawed so they're, they're quick to admit those flaws do you realize this sight of glory that that you're flawed do you realize that and are you quick to admit those faults and those shortcomings? See, a humble person is. Now I know the Bible exhorts believers to aim for perfection. We read about that in Second in Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. That's the older NIV version of that. But none of us are going to achieve sinless perfection this side of glory, no matter how hard we might trot. Actually, the newer NIV offers a much better translation than the older NIV. This is the only time I really appreciate the newer. Now, rather than exhorting believers to aim for perfection, the newer NIV exhorts believers, it says, to strive for full restoration. Now, simply put, what that means is to strive for spiritual maturity. For sure, when a believer is filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit, and when they're submissive to the Holy Spirit's leading, they begin to experience spiritual maturity in their walk with Christ. Nonetheless, they also understand there's always room for improvement this side of heaven. So are you aiming for spiritual maturity? Are you striving for that? Now you've heard me say this before, we tend to hit where we aim. So the closer we're aiming for spiritual maturity, the closer we'll be striving to achieve that. You see what I'm saying? So where's your aim? A good prayer to pray regularly, I think, and you've heard me mention this many times, is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Now, if we do so, it's been my experience that God will readily call to our attention any sins, any faults, any shortcomings, let me read this to you. It reads like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. A fourth means, unity is personified in humility, is a humble person seeks forgiveness. They seek forgiveness. Now that means it's a, it's a natural progression of the former, which was a, they recognize their faults and shortcomings. And because of that, they, they seek another's forgiveness when they wrong them. Nonetheless, it takes humility to go to a person and, that you've wronged and, and admit so. And seek their forgiveness. I suspect the, the genesis of Yodia's and, and Synchete's disagreement that they had with one another wasn't really born out of, of one wronging another. But it's highly possible that their sharp disagreement eventually resulted in sin. Because that's often where it goes to. Because when sides are taken and division occurs, unholy things are often said and unholy things are often done. That's why it's imperative to resolve conflict quickly and appropriately. And by the way, that's good counsel for married couples. Good counsel. Thus far, we said unity is personified in humility. Through listening, by casting aside one's slants or personal agendas, by admitting one's faults and shortcomings, and seeking forgiveness, and a fifth and final means that unity is personified in humility is equally true, and it is. A humble person forgives. A humble person forgives. Now, like we just said, seeking another's forgiveness is never easy. It absolutely takes humility. However, neither is forgiving another easy. Not easy. It also takes a boatload of humility, for it's a lot easier to remain unforgiving. I'm not going to forgive them. That's especially true if the wrongs they've Leveled against you or another is many, and the degree is something that's extreme. Nevertheless, if you're born again, I want you to hear this God has forgiven you, and you must forgive others. You must. It's something that you and I, as believers, cannot opt out of. Actually, when we choose not to forgive another who's wronged us, and by the way, forgiveness is a choice. We're the one held in bondage, and not the one that we're choosing not to forgive. Now, before we move on, let me share a great scripture, I think, that exhorts believers to forgive one another. Listen to this word. Colossians 3, verse 13. Paul writes, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Now, he didn't say just forgive this or this. He said forgive whatever grievance you may have. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's how he ended it. Without humility, it's doubtful unity ever comes. Perhaps that's why you're living at odds with another. And that's perhaps why many churches aren't experiencing unity. This week it might be helpful to ask yourself if there's one or several means that you need to work on with respect to humility. I say to you that a church's unity is something that it's achieved one couple or one group at a time. Remember, Yodia and Syncates' sharp disagreement may have been that catalyst that brought disharmony to the church at Philippi. Likewise, any dis- disagreement, now hear me, any disagreement that you have with another, that I have with another, and our fellowship has the potential of bringing disharmony to this fellowship. Thus, are you willing to bite the bullet and humbly seek unity? Think about that. Thus far, Paul has articulated two requirements of unity in today's text. Unity requires desire. Remember, we said it was Jesus' desire. It needs to be the church leadership's desire. It also must be the desire between those two warring Christians and the church body's desire. And unity requires humility. Paul's third and final requirement of unity, he articulated in today's text, is unity requires effort. Effort. we already mentioned this in the theme today. It's always worth the effort. Now, in order for unity to be achieved, unity and Synchety both needed to put forth this effort. Paul was hopeful through the Spirit's leading the two ladies that they would come to an agreement in the Lord. One would need to make the first move, but both of these ladies would need to put forth an effort if unity would be achieved. Unity requires effort. Now let me quickly share with you two reasons that unity requires effort. Here's the first reason. Striving for unity can be painful. It can be painful. Now certainly when we admit our faults or shortcomings or sins, seeking others' forgiveness, what's wounded in the process is always our pride, isn't it? Our pride is wounded. As painful as that may may be, I say to you, it's mostly a good thing. It brings us down to earth. Sometimes the, the pain attributed from... We're striving for unity can come in the form of, of even jabs thrown our way by the person that we're seeking to be unified with or, or maybe somebody on the periphery that, that's also thrown jabs our way. Thus, the necessary and, thus as necessary and blessed as the peacemaker is, I say to you that peacemakers do experience some pain along the way. That's the truth of the matter. But as the old weightlifting adage goes, no pain, no gain. I hope you'd agree that any pain that we might experience while striving for unity is always well worth it in the end. So don't give in. Continue putting forth an effort and expect a little pain along the way because it often comes like that. Pain that we experience because of our pride. Maybe pain's because of, of somebody throwing a jab or two or away. Other than striving for unity being painful, a second and final reason striving for unity requires effort is this. Striving for unity can be draining. Draining. It's been my experience. Striving for unity can be physically draining as well as emotionally draining. Largely that's true because sometimes what's needed to achieve unity, it takes great time and effort. Sure, the result is worth it in the end. But I say to you, it's far easier to throw in the towel than it is to strive for unity. It's far easier to say, I'm giving up, I've tried that enough, I'm done. Are you willing to put forth the effort that striving for unity often requires? Now, unity is something that most churches strive for. Actually, all churches should strive for that, but some don't. But few ever achieve. Few ever achieve. And if they do achieve it, it seems that it's something that you have today and you lose it tomorrow. It's often short-lived. Nonetheless, God desires unity for each and every church. Now you see a, a disunified church. I want you to understand that that's a church that pulls in this direction. It pulls in that direction, this direction, this direction. And when that occurs, division is sure to set in, if it hasn't already set in. And once division sets in, you know what happens? Sides are chosen, vision becomes clouded, people begin leaving, ministry goes undone, and the devil sits back and he smiles. He smiles. Like I said earlier, it's been my experience that most division in a church occurs through its methodology. In other words, most division centers, as we said, on how a church does ministry. Now, largely, I believe that that's because each of us comes to the table with particular slants or agendas in mind. But remember, because we we number around 100, give or take or two, according to these pre-pandemic attendance figures, as we said, that means we've got a lot of opinions on how ministry should be done. But like I said earlier, the only opinion that really matters is not yours, it's not mine, but it's whose? The Lord's. It's the Lord's. Now, do you agree with that statement? I hope so. Obviously, prayer is vitally important in discerning the Lord's will for a church. Thus, the church must spend ample time praying individually, praying together for God's direction. But after the Lord's will is made known to a church, slants and personal agendas, they need to be cast aside so the gospel may proceed then unimpeded. What that means is some must get out of the way for the sake of unity. Get out of the way. But that's not always easy for some, is it? Because some of us are naturally pushy. We want it our way. This is the way we've always done it, so we have to do it this way. Or this is the way I see it, so we must do it this way. Now having said all that, if your slants and personal agendas don't match up with the Lord's, are you willing to cast aside your slants and personal agendas so the gospel may proceed unimpeded? Now we're not saying... That your slants and personal agendas or my slants and personal agendas are inherently wrong. We're not saying they're unbiblical. We're just saying that that may not be the agenda that the Lord has for this church. I want you to think hard about that this week. And I also promise to think hard about about that this week. And let's remember, unity is always worth the effort. Let's say it again together. Unity is always worth the effort. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that it's your desire that we be unified. Jesus prayed that for us way back in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you want us to be unified. Help us to achieve that unity so the world may know that you exist. And so the world may know we're one. We're going to have differences. We're going to have opinions on how we, thinks, how we think things should be done. But may we be willing, all of us, to cast aside those slants and personal agendas if it doesn't align with what you desire for this church. That takes humility. And if we've wronged another, may we be humble enough to come to them and seek their forgiveness thank you lord that you are such a good and gracious god thank you that you desire unity and lord may we desire that as well may the church leadership here at mac always desire that and may you be glorified we pray father we just thank you for the wonderful hope we have in christ we pray this in jesus name and all god's people said amen Now let's stand and sing our last hymn together, please.